and welcome to the TID Water and Power Podcast. I'm your host, Constance Anderson, and on this month's episode, we're discussing how TID supplies power and the district's participation in the California energy imbalance market. As summer temperatures soar, the question of how the district will reliably provide power to the more than 239,000 people in our territory always comes up. From flex alerts to rolling blackouts, the power situation in California can grow dire. TID's participation in the energy imbalance market enables the district to leverage our generation assets and provides access to more diverse resources to ensure our customers' lights and air conditioners stay on. On this episode, I'm joined by TID Assistant General Manager of Power Supply, Dan Severson, to discuss TID's decision to join the energy imbalance market, how the district plans and prepares for summer peaks, and how EIM is providing greater flexibility this summer and into the future. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, Why don't you start by giving us a little bit of background on your history with the district? Sure. I started with the district in 2006 as an energy trader. It was a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week position, 365 a year. and I learned a lot about matching energy demand with energy supply. Served four years as an energy trader. Around that time, in the 2010 timeframe, uh, the state really started getting serious about their environmental goals and started passing environmental laws. And there became a need around the district to start following, uh, from a regulatory perspective, all of the laws and regulations that were being passed on both renewable energy side and the carbon side. And, and I did that for around four years. Um, I spent some time in resource planning, um, developing mainly environmental products and trading opportunities around carbon and renewables. I worked on our uh, renewable energy uh, purchase power agreement, which I'll touch on a little bit later, and then had the opportunity to move in as a department manager to the energy markets department, which I'll also cover uh, a little bit later, and then was fortunate enough to be promoted to assistant general manager of the Power Supply Administration uh, in 2020. Awesome. And as the assistant general manager of the Power Supply Administration, can you give us a quick rundown on what departments make up that area? Sure. Yes, we do. We do, we do quite a bit. Uh, it all starts with the combustion turbine department, and it really is the workhorse of the district, 500 megawatts of thermal-based generation in, in three location, uh, 37 very capable employees keep keep the plants maintained and reliable. Very similar to that, our, our hydroelectric department has 11 employees, just under 250 megawatts of, of assets, 203 megawatts at, uh, at Don Pedro. We also own and operate nine small hydro plants, four on our TID canal system, two on the upstream and downstream sides of Woodward Reservoir, and three along the Merced Irrigation District canals. Moving over to power plant engineering and dam safety, uh, this is a five-person department, mainly, mainly charged with the Don Pedro Life Extension Project. Uh, they're also in charge of our uh, FERC-mandated dam safety program. Uh, we also have our resource planning department, which has five employees. The linchpin of what, of what they do is plan uh, our power resources for the next 30 years through uh, what's called the integrated resource plan. They also provide long and midterm trading for power, gas, and environmental instruments. Uh, they forecast our load and our demand, and they budget for our purchase power and fuel. Uh, last but not least is our energy markets department, uh, 20 employees, short-term trading, Anywhere from 30 days to the next hour. Uh, they also provide power and gas settlements and trading support, uh, Cal ISO relations, and they track environmental compliance. All told, 80 of some of the best employees of the district that I'm, that I'm blessed to work with on a, on a day to day basis focused on providing reliable energy for our customers in the most cost effective manner. And that's a tall order. There's uh, clearly a lot of moving parts in that administration. I'm, I'm excited to dig into a little bit more about what each of those areas do and, and how they contribute to providing that power. 
Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about TID's participation in the energy imbalance market and the role that that participation plays in how TID provides energy to meet our, our customers' demand. But I think it's important to start with what I think to be a, a little-known fact about the district, and that is the fact that TID is a balancing authority. Dan, what is a balancing authority, and what led the district to becoming a balancing authority? Great question, and an important piece of our history. Uh, TID becoming a balancing authority really goes back to the 2001 energy in crisis. And what a balancing authority does is manage the minute-by-minute fluctuations of power, both from a, a, a retail demand basis and a power supply basis. Um, a big part of us becoming a balancing authority was building local generation assets that could follow the demands of our load fluctuations on a minute-by-minute basis. Um, our customers and our board did not want to go through uh, the rolling blackouts that we experienced in 2001 and that other customers of other balancing authorities, which I'll touch on later, still uh, experience today. As many of you know, there's uh, flex alerts out there that happen when demand gets high on the systems. Well, TID's grid is electrically interconnected to the outside grid, but fully independent. And so we have all the abilities to manage those demands on, a, like I said, a minute-by-minute minute basis. Some of what governs that, that management are rules that our reliability engineers put in place called nomograms. They define what generation has to be on at what loading level. And so it really gives us an advantage when power becomes short to satisfy the needs of our customers. Uh, one other thing that uh, an important aspect of becoming a, a balancing authority is it, it established what's called our merchant arm, which is the organization or area of our district, which is resides in the power supply administration that optimizes and makes trading decisions to uh, lower the overall net cost to, to serve our customers. So to, to kind of simplify the idea, becoming a balancing authority made us responsible for, as you said, the minute by minute um, match of supply versus demand or supply to demand, but then also gave us the local control to figure out how we're going to do that. Correct. Okay. Okay. All right. So in talking about these generation assets and, and where this power comes from, um, let's dive into that a little bit more. Uh, you want to start by walking us through what generation assets the district has? Sure. Uh, we have a diverse portfolio of generation assets, both inside and outside of our, of our balancing authority. Diverse not only in location, but in technology. Uh, we have large hydropower, uh, starting with Don Pedro. Uh, we have small hydro uh, located along our canal systems and 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 some neighboring systems. Uh, we have an interest in, in geothermal in Northern California outside of the BA. A very important part of our BA operations is is our natural gas facilities. We have, like I mentioned earlier, 500 megawatts of locally owned, controllable, dispatchable uh, natural gas facilities that really enable us to do what we do. And then renewable assets like like wind and solar, we own uh, a wind farm up in Columbia River Gorge in in southern Washington, and then we also have an interest in a in a pretty sizable solar farm down in Southern California. But we are uh, building out renewable assets on our existing infrastructure. What that does is is leverage our existing infrastructure uh, to to build renewables in, inside the BA and better serve our our customers. And I think it's important what you mentioned, um, the diverse mix of generation assets, because as we know, as much as we would love to move to a more renewable-based portfolio, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So we, we have to have the means to provide for our, our demand, um, even when those key factors aren't in place. So that's kind of where the, the combustion turbine group comes from. Absolutely. Simply said, there's not enough land in our territory to build enough solar um, right. to comply with the renewable mandates. And so uh, we want to maintain that local control. Uh, our land's valuable because we, we did think ahead 
and we did establish our water rights and uh, were one of the pioneering irrigation districts then the first in the state of California. And it really has uh, played well into land values going up. All right. And uh, you mentioned that TID was the first irrigation district in California. So let's let's jump into the hydropower side of our generation assets. What can you tell us about those? Uh, hydropower is is extremely important uh, now more than ever with with the fluctuations in load uh, uh, and our power demands uh, on the system with all of the variable resources like sun and wind. Uh, hydropower. Not a lot of people know how how fast it is. It's very fast ramping reacting uh, generator. And that means it can follow changes in that demand in, in generation. Hydropowers are also clean and carbon free. It's a legacy asset for the district. And it really laid the foundation for our core mission of providing reliable and affordable, affordable water and power. Absolutely. And there's a, a special group that you mentioned when you were kind of going over the, the high level look at the uh, power Supply Administration, and that's your your power plants, engineering, and dam safety teams. Remind us the role they play in uh, in maintaining our hydropower assets. Their main focus is extending the life of Don Pedro. Uh, it's a 50-year asset that's was commissioned in 1971, and so uh, it is at or beyond its useful life in many of its components. and And that team is is really focused on bringing the, the appurtenant structures and the generators themselves uh, up to modern day standards and also adding uh, a little bit of capacity. Uh, another aspect of, of, of what they focus on, another very important part of what we do is, is focused on dam safety. Don Pedro is considered a, a high hazard dam by FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the responsibility of managing a high hazard dam is important. Not only for, for the district, but the whole area, as was mentioned uh, in episode 13 with Evan Lucas. That's right. And just to, to pull a, a line from that episode, when we talk about Don Pedro being a high hazard dam, it's not that it's at risk. It's just that the repercussions of an issue that are downstream from Don Pedro are significant. And Correct. that's where it gets that high hazard. Correct. Yeah, it just means it gets a lot of our attention. <laughs> Absolutely, as it should. Okay. So I think it's important for our listeners to know that we, we don't just roll into work at 7 a.m. on any given day and then figure out how we're going to provide energy for the community. Um, but rather, there's a team that works on securing energy and the means to generate energy even years in advance. Um, would you tell us more about resource planning and, and what they do? Sure. Uh, resource planning like I touched on earlier, the, the most important aspect of, of, of that area is looking at our future needs, not only now and in the midterm, but the long term, 30 years out. And really, they, they have uh, what, what I like to say is the, is the crystal ball of the district. They, uh, they do all of the modeling and analysis uh, on, a, on a forward basis. And it's a, it's a challenging job to, to understand how we're going to get to where we need to be in, in 20, 30 years. Um, and that really does start with our customer. What are our customers need? How do we project how much demand and energy we're going to need to serve on the system? Uh, a lot of it is also involved with, with our climate goals, not only from our own climate goals, but, but those imposed upon us by the state. Um, and then we have one big Wholesale customer, I don't think a lot of people uh, realize that we provide Merced Irrigation District with a wholesale all requirements power. And what uh, about how much power is that? It averages around seventy five megawatts uh, on an on an hourly basis, and roughly four hundred thousand megawatt hours uh, on an annual basis compared to our retail load, which is roughly two point three million. Uh, megawatt hours. Okay, interesting. All right. So then, on a more nearer to real real time basis, if you will, um, there's our our energy markets group. Can you tell us about some of the the different roles in this area? Sure. Four main areas of uh, of this area: uh, trading and scheduling, which is where I started, 
uh, manages the short-term trading and, and matching of demand, uh, with supply, you know, on a 24 seven, uh, basis that, that really does start with forecasting the energy demands. The load forecast is important to understand where we need to go the next day. They have quite a bit of data on, uh, weather data that, that will help predict, um, what the energy demands on our system are, are going to be every hour. Uh, I know that uh, my colleague, Bill Baca, touched on that in episode four. Um, once the power is traded uh, and flows to, to, to serve our customers, our, our, our settlements team handles a lot of the uh, contract administration and, and, and the settlements of both our power and gas uh, contracts, as well as some of our environmental uh, instruments that we trade. And then we have people that deal with our, our relationship with the, with the ISO as well as track our GHG and, and RPS compliance. And so that's greenhouse gases and renewable portfolio standard. Perfect. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, to kind of tie this group together, because I think it's a, again, one of those little known facts that a lot of listeners probably don't realize is that we are buying and selling power on a of every five minutes every five minutes 24 7 365 which is wild and then based on those sales or purchases so that's when then the settlement team will kind of do their part to reconcile the the sales or the or the purchases purchases. yeah Yeah. because we we uh, engage in purchases and sales with with a host of counterparties all across the west awesome very cool Okay, so speaking of this broader connection to uh, energy resources, let's get into the uh, energy imbalance market. But let's take a step back, though. Before we do, can you tell us how uh, the district operated prior to joining the EIM? How how did you set up these trades and and how did kind of day-by-day operations run prior to our joining the energy imbalance market? Sure. So before EIM, uh, trades that we made, either purchases or sales, were based on an hourly schedule and they were static. So if you and I, if you agreed to sell me five megawatts, you would send me five megawatts and it wouldn't change over the hour. Uh, and any deviations that we had as far as load or other generation were picked up by internal uh, generation. And that really is really the main difference between how we used to do things versus how we do things now uh, in EIM. And we're going to get into that a little bit more with the greater flexibility that that comes with EIM. So let's start there. What actually is the energy imbalance market? The energy imbalance market is a five-minute optimization across a very broad footprint of participants. Um, at last count, uh, there's 19 entities representing roughly 70% of all the Western electric uh, demand. All those 19 entities used to have to manage the fluctuations on their own and with static hourly schedules and their own generation. And, and when you talk about these 19 entities, can you kind of break that down for us? It's not necessarily 19 counties or states that are participating. How are some of these entities made up? They're structured uh, by being uh, balancing authorities. Okay. Now there's entities within those balancing authorities that manage resources that participate in the EIM, but the ultimate balancing comes at the balancing authority level. Okay. And again, we are kind of in a unique spot because TID is of itself a balancing authority, whereas a lot of other balancing authorities are made up of multiple agencies and organizations. Correct. Yeah, there's there's many balancing authorities out there that have a host of independent generators managing their own generation and or other retail load providers inside their own territory. Okay. All right. Um, so as you mentioned, EIM provides TID access to a broader selection of resources on a more real-time basis, but how does EIM actually work? Great question and not something easily explained. There was quite an investment in a software package that manages the bidding of our resources uh, into the market. And it enables us to communicate with the California 
uh, independent system operator. They're, they are the mega balancing authority, if you will, of the state of California. And they uh, are comprised of mainly uh, PG&E, SoCal uh, Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric. And then now there's like 42 what are called community choice aggregators. All of that load and all of that generation that those entities bring to the table is managed by the Cal ISO. And then in addition to that, after bringing these 19 entities in, they also manage uh, across the broader footprint, which goes well beyond California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada. Uh, they also manage that um, those fluctuations on a five-minute basis. Wow. Okay. And when you say we... This system allows us to put in our bids. Define for us what a bid is. Sure, it is. So we have a general cost to operate. And our units can have what, what are called operating criteria and constraints. And so it can only produce so many megawatts over a given time frame. So the bidding, getting back to the bidding, uh, lays out the parameters and gives the the EIM market operator instructions on how to dispatch our units. Because essentially, at the end of the day, what we've done is allowed the ISO to dispatch our units in the most economic and efficient manner. And now, um, how often are we putting in these bids? How often are we, are we claiming them? How does that work? It starts 75 minutes before the hour is when the first task happens. That's handled by our trading and scheduling folks. Uh, they set up what's called our base schedule. And what a base schedule is, is our plan for how we're going to meet our demand laid out by generation and purchases. And then also figuring in our reliability obligations, such as keeping a certain amount of reserve for or contingencies. Right. There's another snapshot at 55 minutes before the hour, there's another snapshot at 40. There's all these little adjustments taking place. And then once the 40 uh, minute mark happens, we turn, we being PSA, we turn it over to the ops group in our control center and they manage all the dispatch signals that, that start coming in once the hour starts Okay. Uh, for, for EIM. So the work that our traders and schedulers do is very regimented as to hitting these these markers that happen at these certain increments. Yes. So they have to be pretty strategic and when they get up to get that next cup of coffee. All right. Um, what else can you tell us about how how the EIM actually functions? So one one challenge uh, in, in joining the EIM is that we went from a settlements process that uh, focused on hourly transactions or daily transactions monthly, even quarterly. And now we've gone to a much greater granularity. And so if you think about the difference between an hour and a five-minute increment, it's a 12-fold increase in data. Mm. And so that really um, precipitated us, TID, investing in, in, in software that, could, that can handle that as well as, as add a, a settlements position to handle that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So when did Turlock Irrigation District join the EAM? March 25th, 2021. All right. So we are just over a, a year in. Yep. It was, uh, it was about an 18-month project from the time we got authorization from the board to proceed to, to go live. Okay. And I'm sure there was a, it was a busy 18 months. It was. Yes. <laughs> All right. And uh, certainly not a decision that was made lightly. Um, why did the district ultimately decide to to start participation with the EIM? It made sense from a cost benefit perspective uh, to make use better use of our assets. It, it really penciled out from a portfolio basis. We, we are kind of uniquely situated. We're right in the middle of California. We have four fast-moving combustion gas turbines that can capture fluctuations in market and, and are very responsive to market dispatches um, that allow us to capture a lot of the benefits of EIM and the abundant renewables that are out there on an hourly basis. And then it, it allows us the ability to take advantage of those price spikes, 
And so when price spikes, we kick our generators up and we capture those sales. And when there's an abundance of solar in the afternoon, we ramp our generators down and we uh, have transfers come in from, from the EIM. Mm-hmm. Going back to the old paradigm, that's not, that's, that really is uh, an opportunity we've never had. Going into this, what did we foresee as the benefits of our participation in the EIM? And are we seeing those perceived benefits come to fruition now? Yeah, I'd say the first, the first and foremost benefit was, was capturing the, the, the cost benefits of our portfolio. We, we are seeing that. We projected before joining that the cost to join, that we could recoup our costs in, in, in around 24 months and, and happy to say we actually recouped our costs in, in nine months. Wow. That's great. Um, to, to further what you were saying about the cost benefit of joining, um, being able to take advantage of of the opportunities that participation in the EIM provides is just another mechanism by which TID is able to hold our pricing for our customers steady. Um, is would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. Yeah, it really is part of our core mission to keep um, our power the the products we provide competitively priced and reliable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Both those tenants. All right. And then, as with any decision, um, there are typically some some trade-offs. What, if any, have the potential challenges been with our participation in the EIM? <clears throat> sure. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not all roses. And like any new shiny car, uh, the more you drive it, the more you start and stop it, uh, the more maintenance there is. And so what we've seen is uh, the effects on our thermal portfolio. There's been a lot more cycling, a lot more starts and stops. Uh, we're still learning uh, how to manage that, uh, but that does and that will have an effect on on the maintenance of those units. Okay, because again, looking at that more static approach prior to joining EIM, things were a little bit more predictable as far as how we would run our generation assets. Whereas now, with the increased flexibility, comes that increased wear and tear. Move, uh, they move around quite a bit, and one thing we've learned about EIM is if you tell them that your unit can do something and it and it's either in or out of the money, they will test that. <laughs> All right. So what would what would the scenario have looked like if TID had decided not to participate in the EIM? So really the the what we started to see, even uh, as we were considering joining, is that more as as more and more entities join, there became a lack of trading partners and a lack of liquidity in some of the transactions that we were trying to get done. Really, joining EIM for those entities automated a lot of their real-time, hour-ahead type of decisions where they set their plan up and they hold all their capacity back because they know they're going to get either the cheapest energy or the best price for their energy uh, in EIM. And so they were more and more hesitant to trade with us under the old hourly paradigm. That was definitely one one impact. Um, another another impact I think that's often overlooked when people talk about EIM is is the reliability aspects of EIM. Um, under the old hourly paradigm, we talked about how wind, water, and electricity demand demand are all variable. We would have to manage those ourselves inside the hour, and if electric demand increased too much. We, we would run into reliability problems. Mm-hmm. Or if electricity demand or generation uh, tripped offline or, or what have you because of operational uh, concerns, uh, we would have to manage that ourselves. All right. So we've had just over a year of participation in the EIM. Is it too early to look ahead to what the future of the market looks like and, and what's coming next? Or, or what do you see? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> but since you asked the question, we'll take a look at it anyway. Um, just in the immediate future um, and the immediate past, EIM uh, just added two more entities uh, this year. Okay. Uh, and we're slated to add three more in 23. And at that point, I believe we'll, we're going to have close to 75% of the electrical demand in the Western Interconnect, uh, which comprises essentially everything in the West except for Texas. So all of the power that's traded then within that rough territory 
uh, about 75% of that will be traded in the EIM? 75% of the demand of those entities will be will be in, in the EIM market. Got it. Actively okay. participating, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then as far as looking in the future, all the benefits of EIM translate extremely well out into the day-ahead paradigm. And so... I'm probably confusing things here when when I talk about 75% of the demand that's the that's the overall west-wide electric power demand. EIM captures around 15 to 20% of the hourly power that's traded in the western interconnect. A big bulk of the power that's traded in the western interconnect is done on a day ahead basis and that represents around the other 75 to 80%. Um, and so the thought was, well, let's just extend the same program to the day ahead paradigm. Um, and so they're working on what's called the EDAM. It's called the, the extended day ahead market. Um, the ISO, there's some, there's some competing, uh, efforts happening. There's an effort from the Southwest Power Pool that's called Markets Plus. Uh, and then there's also the Cal ISO is, like I mentioned, trying to get the extended day ahead market up and running by 2025. Okay. All right. So we've got some things on the horizon to to watch out for. Correct. Now I want to shift topic a little bit. We're moving into the height of summer, and we've already seen some pretty solid stretches of triple-digit weather. When the temperature rises, obviously, so does the energy demand. And we know that these summer peaks are coming, but I don't think a lot of people realize that the district works year-round to monitor, plan, and eventually produce for these periods of high summer demand. What is the summer outlook for the district and its customers? And what can you tell us about TID's summer readiness preparations? Sure. And, and this is something that really is central to what we do in, in the Power Supply Administration. We uh, take reliability and our ability to supply our customers very seriously. And we're always focused on covering the peak. And this is work that's done on a year-round basis by all of the departments. Um, and, and, um, so it, it's critical and it, uh, we're, we're required as part of our, our board adopted resource adequacy policy to maintain what's called the planning reserve margin of 15%. And so what we do is we, we look out, we forecast, uh, what we think our energy demands are going to be over the, over the peak of the summer, uh, we add a standard deviation, uh, and then we add 15% uh, on top of that standard deviation, uh, to make sure, to ensure that we're covered. And that is what the district then uses as its goal of, of what they need to have available. Correct. Just that, that extra planning reserve margin covers any, any off events like we've seen in the past couple of years with in 2020 and 2021 specifically, we've seen energy demand uh, increase significantly. That's right. We actually, in 2020, we hit our highest peak. Is that right? We did. 692 megawatts on August 17th. Um, you know, what was really challenging about, about 2020 is the way people enter, uh, used energy changed. There was a lot of people working from home. So we saw our residential demand go up. We saw some, uh, some other sectors of the economy go down. But w- what was challenging about the August day, uh, in particular was that there was a, uh, bunch of wildfires, um, burning rampantly in the state. And that was causing smoke to kind of sit in the valley. And what that does is it cut a lot of the solar power that we expected right. to come on. And so not only did we have extremely high temperatures, uh, and I just, I'll say that as temperatures increase and we see more and more hundred degree days, that third day is always seems to be the critical one where, especially where we don't see the overnight lows come down below where air conditioners are set. And so there's not that That's right. relief and that drop in load. And so what happens is the energy demands of the next day just keep adding on top. Makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, so we set our, our load uh, record of 692 megawatts that day. And and it's interesting that you mentioned the fires that were happening in 2020 and the effect that the smoke had on um, our 
uh, producing solar because in 2021, we also ran into some issues with fire during kind of some of these peak days, um, but in a different way. We did. Yeah, so um, we um, we haven't talked about it, but an important piece of our portfolio is our transmission assets. And TID has, uh, has and owns transmission all the way up to the Northwest. An important, an important path is called the, the COI, California-Oregon intertie, uh, that really ties the Northwest, which has abundant renewable uh, hydropower and wind energy uh, t- uh, to load centers in California. There was a, uh, a fire that crept uh, perilously close to one of those transmission lines and it had to be taken out of service. And that, in addition with extremely high temps, high demand, uh, lower than uh, projected solar caused or some neighboring balancing authorities to issue what people often see as a flex alert and shut some powers, uh, people's power off for, for a short time. But, and I will credit the Power Supply Administration for their astute forecasting and planning, we did not have those issues here in, yeah. in Turlock Irrigation District. We, we came through it okay. And we were actually able to help the ISO in a, in a small way. Awesome. Very cool. All right. So how, how do we model this peak? We know it's coming every summer. We know, you know, we need to prepare for it. How, how do we model this? So it really starts with looking at the needs of our customers. Um, we also look at uh, our forecasted temperature. What kind of year is it? Uh, what kind of trend are, are we seeing? And then we do what's called um, a regression analysis, and we add all kinds of s- fancy words like stochastics and things on top of that. And we come up with this range of uh, possibilities on our load. We plan for the base scenario. We have a high, a, a low, and a base scenario uh, plus, plus the 15%. And so that base, is, that base is in the middle between the high and the low. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And then, like you said, the 15% reserve that gets added on yeah. onto that. Covers those events that we can't otherwise plan for. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So while you're doing this um, planning and this modeling, what are some of the potential issues that can arise during the summer uh, when the demand is higher and the the margins for error are, are smaller? Sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it can it can be real really challenging. Uh, extended heat waves uh, cause, like I mentioned earlier, wear and tear on the systems and our infrastructure. A lot of times, our uh, the power lines that we schedule energy over become derated because they become overheated. Mm. And, and derated means that they're means that the transmission operator in charge, in order to protect the asset, will derate the amount of energy that can flow on that on that line uh, because of the heat. Okay. And so, if you're counting on, so say like the Koi TID owns like 237 megawatts. There's times like when it gets really hot that we can't we can't bring that much energy home. Okay, makes sense. Uh, another potential problem is that heat um, reduces the efficiency of our of our thermal plants. And whenever it gets above 95 degrees, uh, I'll use Walnut Energy uh, Center as an example. Instead of putting 250 megawatts out, it'll be, uh, the most it'll put out is 242 or 243 or something like that. I get that. When it's hot outside, I put out less energy too. So <laughs> I understand. Yeah, we do. <laughs> All right. What what are some other issues we might encounter? So uh, unplanned issues with with generation assets, they can break, they can trip offline. Uh, they're very complex pieces of machinery, and not everything operates as you might expect all the time. Fortunately for for TID, and something I haven't mentioned yet is that we pool our reserves so. We're required by NERC to carry a certain amount of reserves. This is different than planning reserve margin. Okay. This is real-time uh, online spinning capacity that is required to um, respond to what's called contingencies. And so what I mentioned, like a generation trip would be considered a contingency. TID pulls our contingency reserve uh through what's called now is called the Western Power Pool. 
it's a collection of a lot of the same 19 entities that belong to EIM, but it's a, it's a, a program that models and shares contingency reserves. And so, for example, if, if I had a generator trip offline, there's a, there's a protocol where our control center hits a button and we instantly get sent energy to help recover from all the other entities that belong to the pool. Wow. That's a good group of friends to it have is. your back. Yes. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm hearing you again and again talk about these kind of redundancies that we have built into our system that all go to ensuring that TID has the, the reliability that our customers have come to count on. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a host of efforts taken to, to ensure that we can serve our customers' demands at any time. Absolutely. But I'm also guessing that some of these come at a cost. Um, how does that play into summer planning and um, the, the kind of the pitfalls you have to watch out for? <clears throat> sure. Um, you know, one of the pitfalls of having uh, a portfolio that's that's based on a commodity is that commodity prices move. And even though uh, the district have has a has a pretty robust hedging uh, policy, we're uh, we're still exposed somewhat to the market. I think a lot of our customers out there can identify with the rising costs of, of, of gas and, and, and we're no different. We're, we're seeing it in a related commodity, commodity, and that's natural gas. And that's also then where some of that resource planning comes into play because we, some of these contracts, um, for the commodities we need to ensure generation are set in place years and years. If, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The board, uh, uh, fortunately, in its wisdom, al- allowed us to procure a few ten-year uh, contracts. That um, at the time there was some doubt, like should we be doing this? But but look, but look pretty good now. Okay, so what are some of the specific mitigation efforts the district takes during the summer or in planning for our summer operations? Sure, some of this I've I've touched on, but and and I'll, and I will take the opportunity to say that it really is what we're all about. Um, is making sure that we can, we can get through the summer. But, uh, a few examples of this is, uh, our, our maintenance on our facilities, our, our generating facilities and our transmission assets normally happen on, on non-peak months. So that's, that's fall, that's spring and winter. We always, uh, shift our maintenance plans to, to at least reduce customers. And so it's in that vein. We like to procure our power, uh, and, and enter in our agreements early. Uh, rather than waiting and, and being, uh, subject, uh, uh, to, to the market forces in, in our energy and our fuel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. And so now, um, you know, it's interesting. You referenced earlier the, the third day of a heat wave that, and the compounding, um, situation that that places on our, our reliability on our generation. Um, now in the third year of a drought, we're seeing a very similar situation in that it's not just that we're in another dry year, but it's the third year compounded on top of the first two years that that make the situation even more extreme. Um, what does that mean for hydro generation for the district? It it, it does have quite an effect. Um, and so this, this year, as you mentioned, it's the third year uh, of the drought. Uh, we're expected to get less than half of the generating capacity at Don Pedro than, than, in, than in a normal year. Wow. That's significant. Um, and then as a secondary effect in that as the, as a res- reservoir goes down, there's less, less and less head pressure, which drives, uh, the efficiencies. And so of, of the turbines at Don Pedro. Uh, so we have to put, uh, more water to get, uh, the same amount of megawatts uh, as a full reservoir. All right. So then looping back to EIM, how does our participation in the EIM benefit us during these, these summer peak seasons? Yeah. The summer, the summer is becoming an interesting time. And one thing about the summer in California is that it's usually, uh, uh, pretty clear and there's an abundant amount of solar power. Um, and so what happens, it's a, it's a, it's the strangest thing. I mean, the 15 years I've been here at the district, it's really flipped on its head to where the three, four, five o'clock in the afternoon hours were our highest demand 
and the most expensive hours to trade at. And the proliferation of solar and renewables, especially solar uh, on the California grid, has really made some of those late afternoon hours the most attractive from a pricing perspective. A lot of times, there's not enough demand uh, to take all the power. And sometimes we get paid to take power where the market goes negative. Um, that's definitely uh, one one of the benefits. And what are you what are you seeing as that as that peak time now? You said originally it was kind of that three to five range, and and where does that lie now? Sure. In the utility energy trading world, we we speak in in terms of hour ending, and so it's hour ending one through hour ending twenty four. Uh, we used to see the peaks three three to five p.m., which is hour ending fifteen to hour ending seventeen. Mm-hmm. Now with solar, has really mitigated that that peak. But what happens is solar dies off, but all that latent demand is still there. People are getting home from work, turning on all their appliances, TVs, starting to cook dinner, et cetera, et cetera. And we see this precipitous ramp right around 6 p.m. to to 9 p.m. is is really the challenging for 18 to 21. Okay. So solar production is waning while folks are are getting home and, and using more energy and driving up that demand. Sure. And the the crux in between the two. Interesting. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball. What does the future look like with respect to generating and providing power for our customers? Great question. And a question I get asked a lot. And I don't have a good answer for. <laughs> <laughs> um I really do think the the grid of the future will be more dynamic. Um, as you add more variable resources, uh, flexibility is going to be key. The way we give visibility to our customers, I think needs to, needs to change. I think in the future, you'll see us empower our customers to manage their, uh, their energy demand. Uh, disruptive te- technology is going to continue, uh, to develop. You know, there's, uh, the Googles and the Amazons of the world that that are wanting to do what we do uh, on a cheaper, more distributed basis. Um, That's an interesting thought. That'll uh, that'll continue to be uh, a challenge. And then uh, balancing all of the renewables and the variable generation out there on the grid with serving the customer and making sure that uh, that we're reliable. And like I mentioned earlier, we're you know, we're in an area that's pretty good for solar, but really doesn't make sense for us to build utility solar here because of land values. The wind's not good. Um, and so it, it, it does present some challenges. Now, there are some opportunities and I'll touch on project Nexus again. It's a, it's an opportunity to build small scale renewables on existing infrastructure. And, uh, we're really excited about that project, but a, a majority of our, Renewables, uh, we just simply have to contract for outside of RBA and, uh, and import them as we need them. Mm-hmm. So are there ways that we as, uh, TID can better prepare to meet future demand? What, what's coming online? So I really do think in our, uh, external affairs department does a great job at this and it starts with, with education. Um, it starts with conservation. Uh, people understanding how to use energy, when to use energy. Um, energy efficiency is a, is a huge part of that. Uh, investing in the latest technologies to serve power. The state continues to go on the electrification, uh, path. And so while you can see pretty easily, um, uh, transportation, houses, uh, buildings all are going to add uh, a whole bunch more demand on the power grid. And, and we're adding more and more variable, non-dispatchable generation. The, the easy answer is, is to build storage and, and batteries. But I'm, I don't know that there's enough lithium in the world to build enough, uh, battery storage that we need to do, to do what we do. Um, Emerging technology is going to continue also to, to play a role. Uh, the questions about how do we get to a hundred percent carbon free future, uh, renewable natural gas, 
hydrogen, biomass, modular nuclear is, is also got some play. I don't know, uh, how likely that is for California, but, um, it has some interesting, uh, concepts. Okay. So as we're looking to kind of wrap things up here, is there anything else that, uh, that we haven't touched on that, that we need to add at this point? Uh, nothing that comes to mind. I just will say that, uh, my journey here at TID has been quite the ride. And, uh, I heard someone say this a few years ago. We're going to change more in the next 10 years, five to 10 years than we have in the previous hundred. And, uh, it's going to be a fun ride. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad we have you behind the wheel, Dan. Thanks very much for, uh, for being with us today and, and helping, uh, to explain a little bit of how, how TID does what it does. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the TID Water and Power Podcast. You can find TID on Facebook at facebook.com slash ID, on Instagram and Twitter at ID, and on LinkedIn as the Turlock Irrigation District. I'm your host, Constance Anderson. We'll see you again next time.